This past week, I was thinking about little Finley here. For many of us, 2020 has been one of the hardest years of our lives. Some of us, honestly, have been freaking out a lot. But not Finley. He doesn't have a care in the world. Maybe part of the reason is he's only been alive for 12 weeks, but (laughs) he doesn't have a care in the world. Finley here, he's not worried about COVID. Finley's not concerned about putting food on the table or paying the bills. Uh, Finley, he's not going to be any more stressed out on November 3rd than he'll be on November 2nd because he couldn't care less about who wins the presidential election. Little Finley, he's oblivious to all the problems and difficulties that we're experiencing this year. Wouldn't it be kind of nice to be that oblivious? (laughs) To not have any understanding of all the problems and difficulties we're dealing with? I think that'd be pretty nice. But as we dive into Jeremiah chapter 29 today, God is going to share with us something that's going to be even nicer. You see, God has a plan to give you hope and peace in your life. He has a plan to help you be blessed, and you don't even have to be oblivious to experience it. God has a great plan for your life, and we're going to learn more about it today. So open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm calling this message, Pray for Our City. To prosper. Say bye to everybody, Finley. So we're going to be in Jeremiah 29. Last Sunday, we were in Isaiah chapter 11, and I mentioned to you that Isaiah spoke the words of prophecy to the people about 700 BC. That was about 700 years before Jesus was born. And so today we're going to fast forward about a hundred years to about 600 BC. Uh, The people of Judah had uh, ignored God's warnings that he had given them through the prophet Isaiah. They continued to turn their backs on God and ignore God's commands. And as an act of judgment, God allowed the army of Babylon to sweep in from the east and conquer Judah and their capital city of Jerusalem. The Babylonian conquest came in in three waves over a a period of about 19 years. And what we're about to read here in Jeremiah chapter 29 was most likely written uh, by Jeremiah after the second wave of that conquest. Several thousand Jewish nobles and, and craftsmen and skilled workers had been hauled 800 miles across the desert from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they felt like God had abandoned them. It was the worst year of their lives. They felt like God had completely turned his back on them. But God had a message to speak to them through the prophet Jeremiah. A message of hope in the midst of the hardest situation of their lives. He speaks to them through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. I hope you're there with me in your Bibles as I begin reading in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people. Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, And the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, 
whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. May God bless us as we read and study and apply his word to our lives today. So God had a fresh word that he wanted to give to the Jewish POWs in Babylon. He wanted to to share it through his prophet uh, Jeremiah. So what had happened was the people of Israel had rebelled against God. Isaiah sent them the warnings from God that if they continued to rebel, they would suffer the same fate as northern Israel. And that's exactly what happened. They continued to rebel and God brought that punishment and that judgment to that southern kingdom of Judah and their capital city of Jerusalem. And so God brought that punishment. And so after that punishment was being carried out, a number of those uh, nobles had been carried off the desert through the desert to Babylon. And, and so Jeremiah, for whatever reason, was still left behind in Jerusalem. Now, the way Babylon did it when they had these three waves of conquest in the first wave, they took uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Of course, we read about them in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, they were kind of the, the upper echelon, the cream of the crop, the most talented and gifted uh, among the nobles. And so uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take them in the first wave. And then in the second wave, which was about eight years later, uh, he took even more of the nobles and more of the craftsmen and, and more of the leaders in the palace. And then finally in that third wave, he took the rest of the people except for the poorest of the poor. And so Jeremiah was left behind after all three waves of conquest. Evidently, the king of Nebuchadnezzar and his army generals uh, didn't think Jeremiah was worth taking uh, back to Babylon. We're not told why, but he's left behind uh, there in Jerusalem to kind of pick up the pieces. God gives him this message. He puts it on his heart. He says, I have a message I want you to give to the people in Babylon, those POWs, those exiles who had been taken in that second wave as uh, captors. Uh, as captives of the uh, king of Babylon. 
And so Jeremiah says, yes, Lord, I will obey your command. And he realized that that was 800 miles away. Uh, So that was no small feat to uh, be able to send them a prophecy. Uh, He, of course, didn't have a phone back then. He didn't have email. And so he writes them a letter. And that's what we just read here. Jeremiah's letter that was delivered 800 miles uh, to those captives, those POWs uh, in the nation of Babylon. It says in verse 3 that the couriers who delivered this letter were Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah. So with Jeremiah's letter in hand, Elisa and Gemariah began their 800-mile journey to Babylon. Well, God's message to the Jewish exiles begins in verse 4. And it's a message in verses 4 through 6 where God gives His people a fresh perspective on their captivity. He speaks to those, many of whom felt no hope, and he gives them a glimmer of hope. He gives them this wonderful, fresh perspective and a a great message of hope. The main reason why God's people uh, felt that their situation was hopeless there in Babylon is because they did what we oftentimes do. They took their eyes off of God and focused instead on the problems around them. They took their eyes off of God and focused on their crummy situation. These Jewish exiles, by and large, viewed their situation as a tragedy instead of an opportunity for God to bring a triumph. But we know, don't we? We haven't forgotten, I hope none of us have, that God specializes in transforming tragedies into triumph. Amen? It's God's specialty. He specializes in turning tragedies into triumph. And so beginning in verse 4, God basically asks those POWs who had been taken from their homeland of Israel 800 miles east to Babylon. He basically asked them in verse 4 this question. Who carried you into exile? You won't find that exact question there, but it's implied. Who carried you into exile? Now, how do you think most of God's people there in Babylon would have answered that question? Who carried us into exile? Well, God, that's kind of a no-brainer. Duh. It was the Babylonian army. Nebuchadnezzar sent his army into Jerusalem and they took us from our homes and they hauled us 800 miles across the desert. Whose fault is it? Who brought us into captivity? Obviously, it was the Babylonians. Well, they thought it was an easy question to answer, but they answered it wrong. They answered it wrong. Notice what God says there in verse 4. In verse 4, He says, and He repeats it again in verse 7, and then He repeats it again in verse 14, three different times in these 11 verses, God says, I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, who carried you into exile to Babylon? And He answers His own question. He says, I did. I did. It wasn't the Babylonians. It was me. It was me. So from the very beginning of this little letter written by Jeremiah to the Jewish POWs in Babylon, God wanted them to change their perspective. He wanted them to open their eyes and see the truth. The truth being, ultimately they weren't POWs in Babylon because the Babylonian army had more soldiers or better weapons or more skilled generals. 
And they certainly weren't POWs in Babylon because God had forsaken them and ignored them. They were POWs in Babylon for one reason and one reason only. Because God himself had brought them there. Let that sink in for just a moment. They had been torn from their homes. Many of their neighbors had been killed on the the blade of a sword. They had been hauled 800 miles across the desert to a land they had never been to, forced to live in a a land they thought was God-forsaken. Many of them them may have called it a a hellhole even. They didn't want to be there. It's the worst year of their lives. And God says, it actually wasn't Babylon that did it. It was me. It was me. Well, they were POWs there in Babylon because God wanted them there. What do you suppose the chances are that God is revealing to you and me today a principle that applies to the crummy situations that you and I find ourselves in? I think the chances are pretty good. I want to share with you what I like to call the sovereignty principle. Different pastors may word this a little bit differently, but the sovereignty principle goes basically like this. Because God is sovereign, which is a fancy way of saying He is large and in charge. Because God is sovereign, because He is large and in charge, we're not where we are because people brought us here. We're where we are because God brought us here. Can you receive that word today? You are where you are, not because of people who brought you here. You are where you are because God brought you here. You and I could spend the rest of our lives talking about and and meditating on this powerful insight. God has given us free will and every day you and I have to use that free will to make choices. And pretty much every day of our lives we use our free free will to make dumb choices. And those around us just about every day make dumb choices as well. We do dumb things. But we fail to recognize that even when we screw up, and even when those around us screw up, and even when our political leaders screw up, God is still large and in charge. He is still in control. We are still where God wants us to be because He's even factored our screw-ups into His master plan. Can you receive that word today? God has even factored your screw-ups into His master plan. Because God is sovereign. He is sovereign. Do you remember Jonah, the prophet who ran from God? Jonah, you probably remember one of the most famous prophets in the Bible. Let me ask you, when Jonah ran from God, was that part of God's plan? Was that part of God's plan for Jonah to run the opposite direction of where God told him to go? We might be inclined to say, no, it wasn't God's will, but the biblical answer is yes. In fact, him disobeying God was even part of God's master plan. You see, God knew ahead of time that Jonah was going to do what he was going to do. And so knowing that Jonah was going to rebel against God and he was going to go the opposite direction of Nineveh where God had called him to go, God orchestrated the situation so that there could be the perfect ship God wanted there at the dock. And so when that ship came with those pagan soldiers on it, Jonah would board that ship heading in the opposite direction and he would be able to share the good news about the one true God with a bunch of pagan sailors that God wanted so desperately 
ultimately to be saved. You see, even God's plan involved the disobedience of Jonah. And the same goes for you and me. Let's chew on this amazing insight. God even uses our screw-ups to carry out his master plan. Well, if the reports are correct, last year some scientists in Wuhan, China, accidentally released the COVID-19 virus that has wreaked havoc around the world. Was this or was this not part of God's master plan? The biblical answer? Yes, it was. It might be hard for some of us to stomach, but God is sovereign. It means He's sovereign even when things stink. What was an accident by man was somehow part of God's master plan. In 2018, Gavin Newsom was elected as the governor of California. Was that an accident? Or did Californian voters somehow screw up in who they elected as their governor? And the biblical answer, once again, is it was part of God's plan. Somehow it was part of God's plan. Ultimately, he, Governor Newsom, is in the governor's mansion because it's somehow part of God's design and plan. Uh, Just as Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House, and that's somehow part of God's plan, and just as Mayor Garcia being uh, Mayor of Victorville is somehow part of God's plan, so when someone is declared the winner of the presidential election next month, is there any reason for any of us to freak out? And the answer is, no, there's not. Because, as we talked about earlier this month, It is our duty to seek out the heart of Christ on the issues that our candidates that are running for election will vote upon. And it is our duty to select leaders who will vote in line with the heart of Christ. But once we make that decision, once we vote according to God's word and according to our conscience, we trust God with the results, don't we? We trust him with the results. We put it in his hands. We put it in his hands and trust that whoever ends up in the White House or whoever ends up in the governor's mansion or whoever ends up in the halls of Congress or in City Hall here in Victorville has been placed there by God for such a time as this. So we don't have to freak out. The president of the United States isn't large and in charge. God is. So trust him. Trust him. It's all part of his plan. Even if you and I don't know how all the pieces will fit together, it's all part of his plan. So God tells the Jewish exiles in verse 4, I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And again in verse 7, I've carried you into exile. And again in verse 14, I have carried you into exile. God wanted his people to understand that they were there in Babylon because he had put them there in Babylon. And he had put them there for a reason, a reason that was going to take a number of years to carry out. In fact, it would take 70 years for God's plan for his people there in Babylon to be fully carried out. So God tells them in verses 5 and 6, you're going to be here a while. So build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. 
Because many of the Jewish POWs had taken their eyes off of God and were focused on all of their problems, all they could think about was how to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible and hightail it 800 miles back to Jerusalem. But God said, not so fast. I want you to be where I've placed you at this time. Can you relate with the Jews there in Babylon? Have you ever been somewhere where you didn't want to be and you were trying to get out of that place as soon as possible? For some of us, that place is Victorville. Let's be honest. Some of us have had this thought that Victorville is just temporary. I'll be out of here soon, so I won't get myself a a place of my own. I won't get a job. I, I won't join a church. I won't lay down roots. After all, I'm not supposed to be here. Can you relate? Many of us can. And God answers back, wrong. When the Jews there in Babylon said, God, I'm not supposed to be here, he said, wrong. When we say, God, I'm not supposed to be where I am right now in this city, God says, wrong. Yes, you are supposed to be here. I put you here for a reason. So live your life until I tell you it's time to go. Listen to these words from Warren Wearsby. Pastor Wearsby writes, Accept your situation from the hand of God and let God have his way. One of the first steps in turning tragedy into triumph is to accept the situation courageously and put ourselves into the hands of a loving God who makes no mistakes. Can you do that today? Even if you don't like the situation you find yourselves in, even if you don't like the town you live in, even if you think this is going to be over tomorrow and you're trying to get out of here as quickly as possible, can you trust God that he's at work right now in your situation? Can you put yourself courageously and trustingly in the hands of God? Because he knows what he's doing. As Wearsby says, God makes no mistakes. Well, in verses 4 through 6, God shifts gears a little bit. He's talking at the start of this letter to Jewish exiles who had no hope. And then he shifts in verses 7 through 9. And he addresses Jewish exiles who had a false hope. So in verses 4 through 6, he's addressing those who had no hope. In verses 7 through 9, addressing those who had a false hope. Take another look at at verses 8 and 9. God mentions that among the Jewish exiles, there were Jewish prophets who were prophesying lies to the people. Uh, Down in verse 21, God identifies two of these false prophets by name. You can see that in verse 21. One of the guys was named Ahab, son of Koliah. The other guy was Zedekiah, son of Messiah. These false prophets were telling those Jewish exiles that they would only be in Babylon for a little while. You're only going to be here a little while. We're going to go back to Jerusalem in in just a couple years. So uh, don't build houses and don't plant gardens and and don't get married and don't have children because all of this is temporary. And and God says, no, here in verses seven through nine, he says, these are false prophets. Pay no attention to him. These false prophets were trying to get people to rebel against God's plan. God had a plan for his people there in that foreign land of Babylon. And God didn't want them to jump ship. He didn't want them to leave a moment sooner than that 70 years would be over and God would call them to return to Jerusalem. Well, it's a good thing to give people hope 
as long as it's not a false hope. And that's what these false prophets were giving the people in Babylon. They were giving them a false hope. You see, there's nothing more defeating than believing with all of your heart that all of your problems are going to end tomorrow. And tomorrow comes and goes and all of your problems are still there. That's defeating, isn't it? So they weren't giving these people hope. These false prophets were giving them this false hope. They were setting them up to be disappointed because they weren't speaking the truth from God's word. Well, God's message through Jeremiah probably seemed like a real downer to the exiles at the time. They must have thought, this is God's real word for us? Seventy years? You've got to be kidding me. Seventy years? We have to stay here in Babylon that long? That's the worst news ever. But it was actually good news. It was actually real, true hope. Because it was part of God's master plan. And if it was part of God's master plan, then it couldn't be anything other than filled with hope. Because God's plans are always the best plans. Amen? God's plans for His people are always filled with God's kind of hope. Now I want you to take a a look at verse 7. It's one of my favorite verses in this passage. It so beautifully and powerfully urges God's people to get on board with God's plan. And I believe He's speaking to you and me today through verse 7 as well to get on board with His plan. Look at verse 7 again. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. You may feel like you're in exile in Victorville or in Atlanta, wherever you're watching this today. But if you are in exile, God has a a purpose for that exile. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Amen? If it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, consider how counterintuitive this statement is. I would have been, it would have been natural for those uh, Jewish exiles to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred and, and unforgiveness toward the Babylonians because those are all parts of our old sinful nature, right? Those are parts of our sinful nature. So when we're allowing our old sinful nature to be in charge, you find yourself in a situation like the Jewish exiles found themselves in. It would be natural for them to be bitter and for them to have resentment and to be angry and to have hatred toward their captors. But those things have no place in the heart of someone who has given their lives over to God and is controlled by the godly new nature. The Jewish exiles were God's people. And as such, it was high time for them to stop living according to the flesh and start living according to the Spirit. And the same goes for you and me. When we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside us, there is no room in our lives for bitterness or resentment or hatred or unforgiveness. There's no room for playing the blame game, blaming everybody else for our problems. Some of us go through life and we're pointing the finger at our ex-wife or our ex-husband or we're blaming our parents or we're blaming our boss who fired us or we're blaming the mayor or blaming the president. We go through life, some of us, playing the blame game. There is no place in the Christian's life for the blame game. God calls us to pray for the peace 
and the prosperity of those people that our old nature wants to criticize and slander and blame. God calls us to pray for them. God calls us to pray for them. I would guess that some of us here are are harboring bitterness and resentment towards certain family members who have treated us like dirt. Maybe you're harboring some bitterness and resentment toward an ex-spouse or a parent or someone who you believe has stabbed you in the back. For some of us, it's our own children once they leave the house. We feel like they stabbed us in the back. I would guess that others of us are harboring bitterness and resentment toward certain political leaders who have made decisions that we passionately disagree with. But let me ask you, are you praying for them? Are you praying for them? And if you're not praying for them, I want to ask you, why not? God says to pray for your leaders, even those you disagree with. God says to pray for those who persecute you. God tells you to love those who are your enemies. So why aren't you praying for them? And maybe you are praying for them, but let me go ahead and be bold enough to ask if you are praying for those people you don't care for, what exactly are you praying for them? Because we could be praying that they get sick and die. That's a terrible prayer. We could be praying that that something happens to them that's not very pleasant. And they they get out of our lives and get out of our hair. That's a terrible prayer too. There are certain things called terrible prayers. But God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will be prosper. So catch this. You may not be crazy about the city of Victorville, but you and I need to pray for it. You and I need to pray for it. Why is that? Because many of us in this church live and work in the city of Victorville. And all of us attend church in the city of Victorville. And so if Victorville prospers, we too will prosper. Amen? Many of us live in Atlanta and Apple Valley and Hesperia. I hope that you will pray for your hometown because if your hometown prospers, you will prosper. Uh, Like many of you, I'm not too jazzed with Governor Newsom these days. I'm not too excited about him because I believe with all my heart that he should declare publicly that all churches in California are essential. And he should encourage churches to be able to reopen their doors and hold indoor services as soon as possible. I think he should be doing that, so I'm kind of miffed that he's not doing that yet. But it doesn't really matter what my opinion may be of a certain leader. God has called me to pray for him. Amen? He has called me to pray for him. And not just pray that he'll get kicked out of office or pray that something bad happens to him and someone else has to take his place. But pray for the peace and prosperity of my governor. Amen? Maybe you don't care for President Trump. Do you pray for the peace and the prosperity of your president? Uh, Maybe you're not crazy about your city or the state we live in or our nation, but do you pray for the peace and prosperity of our city, our state, and our nation? Because God has called us to. We're not to respond as our old sinful natures would respond. We're supposed to respond as Jesus Christ would respond to the problems that we find ourselves in and the people around us that we think caused many of those problems. Oh, you see, it is in our best interest 
And it is in God's best interest that we seek the peace and prosperity of our city and our state and our nation and the leaders who lead them. Well, next month, when we have a new city council and we have new state and federal leaders after the election, there will be some of those leaders who you're not jazzed about. There will be some of those leaders you don't care for. And I want to say to you, who cares? Who cares? It's irrelevant whether you like them or not. God's command is to be carried out regardless of what your thoughts and feelings may be about certain leaders. It's irrelevant. It doesn't change God's command to you to pray for them and to seek the peace and prosperity of our city and our state and our nation. Because if they prosper, you and I will prosper too. Amen? Don't miss this. Who ends up in office is important. But how Christians respond to who ends up in office is even more important. Did you catch that? Who ends up in office is important. That's why I encourage you to vote. Vote in line with the heart of Christ. But even more important than who you vote for is how you respond to who ends up in office. Well, this passage ends with verses 10 through 14 where God addresses the exiles who have true hope. He started by addressing those who had no hope. Then he addressed those who had this false hope because they were uh, buying hook, line, and sinker, the false prophecies of those prophets that were telling them they're going to be back in Jerusalem any day now. And here in verses 10 through 14, God gives those exiles hope and really just kind of expands the hope that many of them already had because they had true hope in God. I want you to hear again these great verses. Verse 11 is probably for many of you your favorite verse in the Bible. And I'm going to read verses 10 through 14 once again. It says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Those are some great verses. Despite the fact that the Jewish exiles were strangers taken against their will to a strange land, God was at work. God had a plan, and it was a plan to prosper them and not to harm them, a plan to give them hope and a future. Warren Wiersbe says it well. He writes, true hope is based on the revealed word of God. God gave his people a gracious promise to deliver them and he would keep his promise. God makes his plans for his people and they are good plans that ultimately bring hope and peace. Therefore, there's no need to be afraid or discouraged. Do you receive that today? If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you can trust him. And there is no reason for you to be afraid or be discouraged. Oh, that's so good. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God has a plan. And it's a good plan. So there's no need to be afraid. There's no need to be down in the dumps. Don't be afraid. Or be discouraged. Of COVID. 
COVID is real. It is a real virus and it's causing a lot of damage. But God says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God has a plan. Don't be afraid or discouraged by problems at home or at work because God has a plan. Don't be afraid or discouraged by President Trump or by Governor Newsom's mandates. I wish those leaders, each of them, would do things differently. But I believe God has a plan. God has a plan. Don't be afraid or discouraged by the results of this upcoming election. If I'm not mistaken, God has a plan. That doesn't mean we go through life living recklessly. I'm wearing my masks when I go into stores and restaurants. I'm trying to follow CDC guidelines when I'm out in public and also when I'm at church and encouraging others at church to do the same. We don't go through life recklessly because God is large and in charge. We go through life doing what God has called us to do and taking in all the information that we're given to make wise and godly decisions for ourselves and those around us because we don't need to cut our lives short, do we? But at the same time, we don't walk in fear. We don't walk in discouragement because God has a plan. No matter how bad the pandemic might get, God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. That's in Romans 8.28. No matter who's in the White House, Jesus Christ is building his church and he promised the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's in Matthew 16.18. And as God makes clear here in Jeremiah 11, even if we live in a state that becomes hostile to our faith, God has plans to prosper us and not to harm us. He has plans to give us hope and a future. So since this is true, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there's no reason why you shouldn't be at peace today. Stop looking around at your problems and freaking out. God says, stop focusing on your problems and instead look up and focus on me. Because God is still in charge. God is still sovereign. And God has a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. A plan to give you hope and a future. Receive it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your encouraging word today. And Lord, truth be told... There have been times this year where most of us in some way or another have been freaking out, worried, Lord, to death about COVID or worried, God, about jobs or worried about our income or worried about our church or worried about our president or this election or our governor or our mayor. Lord, we've got all of these many worries and we just long to be like little Finley, Lord, just oblivious to all of it and and just happy-go-lucky going through life without this stress and concern and worry. But Lord, you do have a better plan for us than the plan you have for my cute little dog. Lord, you don't want us to be oblivious to the problems, but you want us to rise above them, focus on you. So change our perspective, would you today, O God? Would you change our perspective and 
Help us to stop focusing so much on our problems and in our difficulties and, and on the temporary things of this world. Help us to lift our eyes to you and focus on the eternal lasting things of heaven. And whatever reason you may have to have us where we are today, I pray that you would teach us the lessons you want to teach us and that we would receive those lessons. I pray that you would shape our character in the way you want to shape our character in the midst of our situations. And Lord, I pray that you would just carry out every single promise in our lives. And Lord, we would take hold of every promise that you will work together for the good because we love you and are called to carry out your purpose right here where we are. Lord, that we would take hold of that promise that no matter what uh, our leaders may say the church can and cannot do, that nothing will stop you, Lord Jesus, from building your church. And I pray that we would take hold of that great promise from Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, that you will carry out within our lives a good and hope-filled plan. You will carry out, Lord, a hope-filled plan for our future. And Lord, you will be heard and found by us as we seek you with all of our hearts. So I pray that we would do that today, that we would seek you with all of our hearts, that we would trust you, O God, and not be worried and concerned about many things, but trust, O God, that you are sovereign, that you have a plan, and may we fall in line with that plan until you call us home to heaven. In Jesus' name.